As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy Magazine's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. This week marks exactly one year since Russian President Vladimir Putin ordered his troops to invade Ukraine. There is now little doubt that Putin failed in his initial goals. Kiev is still standing, Ukrainians are determined to keep fighting, and the West has so far stayed resolute in its support of Ukraine. If Putin had hoped to weaken NATO, the very opposite has happened, with Finland and Sweden on the cusp of joining the transatlantic military alliance. But beyond the goals of one leader in Moscow, it's also clear that Ukraine has suffered horrors of a historic nature. By one estimate from Harvard University, more than 130,000 Ukrainian soldiers have been killed or severely wounded, and that's in addition to the deaths of more than 7,000 Ukrainian civilians. Ukraine's economy and infrastructure have been dealt blows that will take decades to recover from, and it's not over. The question then is what another year of war will look like, and what can we glean from the current state of play on the battlefield? I sat down with two of the very best Russia experts this week. Angela Stent is the author of Putin's World, Russia Against the West and with the Rest. She formerly served on the policy planning team at the State Department, And Michael Kaufman is the Research Program Director of the Russia Studies Program at the Center for Naval Analysis. Now, if you want to take part in these conversations in the future and have a chance to submit questions to these guests, join us as a subscriber. Go to foreignpolicy.com, use the code FPLIVE for a 15% discount. That also gives you access to our magazine, of course, and all of the essays there that will no doubt leave you just a little bit smarter. Finally, just a quick technical note. As you know, Foreign Policy Live is now FP's flagship podcast. If episodes of our previous shows are still cluttering your feed, this might be a good time to do some spring cleaning. We left instructions in the show notes on how to delete those old episodes and just see FP Live in this feed going forward. It's quick and easy, I promise. All right, on to the show. Angela, let me start with you. We both just got back from the Munich Security Conference, and it's interesting to use that as a framing point because last year, um, President Zelensky was there at the conference, and right afterwards, Putin launched his invasion. This year, no Russian officials were invited, and I guess that's a good point to begin with. One year on, has Putin achieved any of his objectives? Well, Russia has taken some more territory, not that much more territory, but some more territory in the Donbas region in Ukraine. Russia, as you said, Ravi, has wreaked havoc on Ukraine, destruction. And if that's what Putin wanted to do to destroy his fellow Ukrainians, whom he says are, uh, in fact, not a separate nation, Russia has achieved that. But it hasn't achieved any of its 
really major goals, which was to change the government in Kiev. President Zelensky, who had a 25% popularity rating before the war began, is now very popular, is seen as a, uh, really as a hero by many of his people. Uh, he's risen to the occasion in this war. Putin has succeeded in uniting Ukrainians, including the Russophone Ukrainians, against Russia and seeing Russia as the enemy in a way they never did before. And of course, uh, as you and I saw at the Munich Security Conference, we still have a year later a united West, despite all the predictions that this unity would, would fade, and a determination to help Ukraine succeed. But as you also mentioned, what Russia has succeeded in doing is ensuring that China is still supporting Russia. And we now know uh, that the U.S. State Department thinks that the Chinese may even be contemplating supplying lethal weapons to Russia. We don't know that yet. And that many other countries in what we call the global south, India, the other BRICS countries, countries in Africa, Latin America, the Middle East, have not taken sides in this war uh, and do and look look upon this as a as a localized European conflict and don't want to be drawn into it. So there, Russia has achieved this kind of support, either active or at least passive support from much of the rest of the world. But in terms of the war aims, it's very hard to see that Russia has achieved really any of the goals. And now we see Finland and Sweden wanting to join NATO, something that Putin certainly didn't want to see either. Exactly. Uh, in many ways, he's brought uh, all of the things he was trying to avoid even closer to happening. You raised China and the Global South, Angela. We'll come to that uh, later in this conversation. Michael, you're the military expert we often turn to. Just talk us through the state of play of where things stand now. Russia was, of course, trying to launch a big push um, to make inroads into Ukraine, but it hasn't quite worked out over the last few weeks. Just talk us through that. Sure. So I think Ukraine had uh, two consecutive offensives that were rather successful in the fall. But then over the course of the winter, I think we'd been in a transitional phase. The Russian military was quite vulnerable. Russian leadership was trying to reconstitute the force, trying to entrench in Ukraine and trying to build out their military power for further onset of offenses. The Ukrainian military pressured Russian forces, but they too were focused on reconstitution. China set units aside for their own major offensive operation which is likely to come in the spring. Then later on this winter, towards the end of January, the Russian military began an offensive, in fact, a winter offensive to try to take the Donbass again. This remains Russia's minimal war aim, right? Now, surely they have aims far beyond the Donbass, but at the very least, it's clear that Putin's still focused on trying to take this uh, region. But the Russian military is still far too weak. It has restored a lot of the manpower, the deficit that they had, and replenish the military in terms of the losses they suffered in terms of personnel. But the quality of the force is very low. You can't replace experienced regulars with people you mobilize that have had about three months of training. They've lost a lot of officers, right? They've lost a lot of the best equipment, and they used far too much ammunition over the course of the last year and are either rationing now or will have to ration soon. Because of that, Russia's offensive potential is quite limited. I think the Russian military may be able to offer a stubborn defense, although those lines have yet truly to be tested. And what's likely going to happen is that the Russian offensive this winter will make some incremental gains, but it may even come at strategic cost to the Russian armed forces because it will exhaust the Russian military and make it more vulnerable to Ukrainian offensive in the spring. Now, it's clear Ukraine is preparing a major offensive operation. That's obvious. Their goal is to liberate their own territory, and very likely it's going to come in the south. 
that said, the one thing we can't see very well is the impact on both forces, right? We often look at territory because that's the thing we can easiest see changing hands on the map. But we can't see the state of other military, the rate of attrition, the loss in quality, or let's say the state of the ammunition that they have. I think it's fair to say that a year into this war, neither military looks the way it did at the start of it. Both have had to adapt. The Ukrainian military has taken a tremendous amount of Western equipment, Western capabilities, had mobilized from the very beginning of the war. It's a different force, right? It's a very experienced force, but it's a force that's had to adapt throughout in order to survive and in order to take the initiative and take the fight to Russia. The Russian military has also taken tremendous casualties and has now dependent on mobilized personnel and the older generation of equipment. Um, Michael, when you look at how the next few months of the war could look like, and you know we look at the last week of diplomacy in Munich and in Kiev, in Warsaw, uh, we look at Putin's speech, Biden's speech. Is there anything that you detect over the last week or two on the diplomatic front that could move the needle of the state of play on the battlefield? No. I mean, to be perfectly honest, what happens on the battlefield, I think, is going to be much more deterministic. Right now, there's no stalemate, nor is there a stalemate looming. And neither side is interested remotely in revising in minimal war aims or negotiating. Russia is absolutely not interested in negotiating. They still think that they can achieve their objectives. And any sort of contrived armistice that might be opposed at this point would only serve to benefit the Russian military, which would then use the period to rearm and begin a follow-on offensive. You'd only be ensuring a continuation war and one that's not only uh, on terms more favorable, most likely to Russia, right? With that being said, I think right now it's best to look at what's going to happen in the coming months. And I think as a sort of mental marker, perhaps it's best to look at this war after a Ukraine offensive in the spring and as the fighting unfolds over the course of the summer. Um, Angela, you've studied Putin for years. Uh, he's not stupid. He knows things haven't gone to plan, and yet he persists. But what's your sense of how he's thinking through the end game in year two, at least? Well, I think he still believes that Western unity will crack, that uh, he's seen the debates among the, the U.S. and the Europeans about what kind of equipment, uh, weapons to supply Ukraine. And now they've promised more sophisticated the, the weapons, the tanks. Uh, the Ukraines, of course, of course, want fighter aircraft. So he's watching all of that. And he still believes that in the end, Western unity will weaken. Um, he's looking at what's happening in the United States uh, and uh, who's got made come to power, you know, after 2024 as a U.S. president uh, and seeing that uh, some Republicans don't want to go on supporting Ukraine. Uh, he's waiting also for different European countries to decide that this is too hard, that the impact of the sanctions on their economy are too severe. So he still thinks that he can toughen this out. I mean, if you watch the speech he made yesterday, there wasn't very much new in it, including suspending participation in the New START inspection series, because in fact, Russia had done that before. But what was clear from that speech was the belief that Russia has always won, victory will be theirs. He said the West is waiting for a strategic defeat, but we will win on the battlefield. So apparently he still believes that despite all the tremendous number of casualties. The figure is for the Russians, 
killed in action and wounded over 200,000. And I'm sure that the number for the Ukrainians is very large too. And I, one other thing I wanted to mention was that he has used this year of the war to consolidate his power domestically. An outsider looking in might think, wow, with a rec military record like that and not having achieved much in Ukraine, surely people would think that this man should go and someone else should come in. But in fact, the opposite has happened. Uh, people who oppose this war have largely left. Those who've stayed have accepted uh, that this war is going to continue. And that's what Putin told people yesterday in the speech. You know, we're, we're going to finish this off and you better accept it. So this is really the only explanation that he still believes that Russia will prevail. Michael, when you hear what Angela just said about the people who support the war have stayed, the ones who didn't have left, how does that affect morale when it comes to the army? So look, morale is very difficult to measure. Let's be frank. There's a reason why we call things like morale intangibles. If they were easy to measure, we would call them tangibles and we could count them the way we count tanks, right? And morale is often context dependent. Who's morale where? Where are you on the battlefield? How well are you supported? How's the fight going? Do you have trust in your commander and what have you? Look, Ukraine clearly has the advantage when it comes to morale. But when you see a lot of the Russian military's complaints, right? And the soldiers are complaining, the anecdotes that you have access to. They're complaining about the fact that they don't have the equipment, that they don't have the ammunition. They're not really complaining about the fact that they're being sent to this unjust war. And that's worth paying attention to. I think Angela's quite right. I think Putin's managed to create a degree of domestic political support or acquiescence for a war that Russia has in no way been winning, right? For something that at best represents what looks like it's going to be a strategic defeat for Russia. Right. That said, it tells us something important. And this is not a new finding. This is already a long war. It's likely going to be a protracted war. I'm not saying this to be pessimistic, but major wars like this tend to cluster broadly in two categories. They're either very intense, but rather short, or if they've gone on this long, they're likely to go on for several years and become slugfests, and they're going to go from one phase to another phase. That is, the next couple of months of this war won't look like this. But one thing you can be fairly confident on, I think, and this is, of course, history's an imperfect guide here, that the war is likely to go on through this year and into the next. I think that's what Putin's counting on. He's counting on this because in his mind, he's informed by the sort of uh, mythology of Soviet perseverance in World War II, right? This mentality that despite all the odds and all the losses, Russia can overcome. Of course, this isn't World War II, and Russia's not the Soviet Union, and he's not the leader of the Soviet Union. And so all these differences put aside, right? But you can imagine, you can imagine that uh, he is very likely committed to this conflict. And more importantly, uh, so are Ukrainians, and they're not willing to give up any of their territory, and they're not willing to give up their sovereignty. And at the end of the day, as Angela said, the West has maintained its support of Ukraine, it stayed cohesive. And while this isn't predictive of outcomes, it's worth saying that the economy's defense industrial capacity of Western countries, of the United States, greatly exceed that of Russia, right? Mm -hmm. I think it's always useful to introduce a bit of a dose of optimism as well, right? So when folks say in the abstract, who is advantage long-term, again, this just speaks to potential, probably it's Ukraine. Um, Angela, given uh, Michael's sort of sober analysis with that dash of optimism at the end, um, you know, there are critiques of the Biden administration's uh, sort of stance and the way it's handled the war in Ukraine. Uh, there's a line of thinking that goes that 
um, the Biden administration has followed a policy of incrementalism mm -hmm. um, where they've sort of, you know, bit by bit in a drip feed um, provided Ukraine with weapons, um, but, you know, often late and, you know, often waiting for developments on the battlefield. Um, where do you fall on this? Um, is it the case that the U.S. should should help Ukraine more quickly, more rapidly, uh, with more advanced weaponry, or is the the drip feed sort of process uh, something that plays to its advantage? So I think you know the Biden administration has been clear from the beginning that it uh, does not want to have a direct confrontation between U.S. or even NATO military and Russia, because that could lead to a major war. And I think for a long time, it was skeptical about how much the Ukrainians could do. I think the Biden administration, like Russia, overestimated the prowess of the Russian military, and they underestimated the abilities of the Ukrainian military. And I think the other thing that's guided them from the beginning is this fear of escalation. I mean, we've had these threats from Putin on and off for the whole year and other Russian officials that Russia is a nuclear power and it does have weapons it could use. Now, I would argue that even though you have to take these Russian threats seriously, I mean, Russia is a, a major nuclear power, the other nuclear superpower. I think that Putin's goal has been to intimidate the West and, and particularly the United States from doing more for Ukraine in terms of weapons because of this fear of escalation. And there are people in this country, in Europe and other parts of the world who take this very seriously and think World War Three will happen if this goes on. I do think that the Biden administration could have been a little bit less incremental because in the end, it keeps supplying things to the Ukrainians that they've asked for and that in the beginning, it's been very wary of doing. We had a, uh, an example just a few weeks ago when the U.S. was not prepared to say that it would supply these advanced tanks, uh, the Abrams tanks to the Ukrainians. And then the Germans said, well, in the end, we're willing to supply our Leopard tanks and have our allies in NATO who have these tanks supply them too, but only if the U.S. does. So now the U.S. has said that it will do it, although um, I think these tanks won't arrive until the end of the year. So I think, and then the same thing is with the fighter jets. I mean, this is what the Ukrainians are really asking for. They were asking for it at the Munich Security Conference. Uh, I think President Zelensky again reiterated that when President Biden was in Kiev. And so far, the U.S. has said, either no or, um, you know, we'll, we'll talk about it later. In the end, they may or may not supply them. But um, given all the offenses that will happen and, you know, what Michael has described, it would have been better to provide the Ukrainians with a wherewithal earlier on to push back on this offensive. And of course, we know that it takes time to train uh, the Ukrainian uh, soldiers in the in the use of these new weapon systems. So I do think that the, the, the this fear of escalation has maybe been somewhat overblown. And just uh, to spend a beat longer on the fear of escalation, Angela, tell us a little bit more about how worried we should be about Putin's announcement that they would pull out of New START. Uh, just explain the stakes there. Well, so Putin didn't say they would pull out of New START. The New START treaty, you know, will be in 
there until 2026. It expires right. in 2026. And part of the New START Treaty is that there are these supposed to be these regular um, on-site inspections, both sides, so that we have some insight into what the Russians are doing to make sure that they're complying and they have insight into what we're doing. And throughout the Cold War, I must say, um, you know, after seven, 1972, when the first major um, arms control agreement was signed, the SALT Treaty, even however bad relations were between the Soviet Union and the United States, this was compartmentalized. The arms control part of the relationship continued uh, with whatever provisions were there. So this, this really is a break. Putin and the Russians have, have refused for some time to allow these inspections, uh, even though the US wanted them to happen. So what Putin has done now is to say that Russia is suspending its participation. In other words, it's not going to allow these mutual inspections anymore. In fact, there's no provision in the New START Treaty for people to suspend it. But nevertheless, legislation has been presented to the Duma, and I believe today it's been passed. I, I do worry about this in as much as it indicates that if relations between Russia and the West continue to be as bad as they are, there may be no possibility of uh, replacing a new start when it expires in 2026 with another major arms control agreement that regulates the US and Russian nuclear arsenals and possibly even the Chinese. And I think the longer term consequences of that are very serious because I think that would also promote proliferation, nuclear proliferation in other parts of the world and would probably lead to Russia and probably the United States, then you know, developing again more new weapon systems. So it's it's in the longer run quite dangerous for the world unless something changes and uh, the Russians are willing to rethink this and at least uh, get back into these mutual ex um, inspections. But I don't see that happening as long as the war is going on. Right, and there are some suggestions or hopes at least that the U.S. has been able to lean on India and China to to convince Russia that that any use of any uh, nuclear device would be a red line, and hopefully that would act as a deterrent. Michael, one of the big news lines that came out in the last week was U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken saying that the U.S. has some intelligence, unstated as of yet, that China may be trying to offer lethal aid uh, to Russia. Uh, in the in its fight against Ukraine. Do you know anything about that? And, and if there are no details just yet, hypothetically, what kinds of things could China help Russia with? Ravi, I don't know what more I would know about it than what Anthony Blinken has said. I honestly wish he had said more. Um, that said, uh, I think that if China is deliberating on providing Russia overt military support, then it would be a significant factor, both in the medium and long term of this war, okay? Because Russia's already gotten much of what it can get from Iran. It's in the hunt to get artillery ammunition from North Korea. But China has an immense amount of artillery ammunition, of land warfare systems, and of other things it can supply Russia. It chose to put its thumb more firmly on the scale and not hedge. So I think it's clear that Chinese policy seems to be that they a list of things they don't want, right? They don't want Russia to lose. They don't seem to want Russia to become something akin to Iran or North Korea on their border. They don't want the war to result in nuclear escalation. They don't want the war to result in NATO intervention either. They don't want to be dragged into a policy where they have to over support, overtly support Russia's uh, misadventure at the cost of their policy towards Europe. 
I'm not a China expert, so it's a bit of intellectual tourism on my part. But my impression is that they don't want all these things, but they are ultimately involved in what looks like increasingly supporting Russia, and they're likely to have to make some choices. That said, I don't have much more to add to what Anthony Blinken has said. It sounds like the U.S. some intelligence about Chinese deliberations, but it also sounds like nothing has been decided yet. I would also just add that the Chinese do not want Russia to lose the war, mm -hmm. um, even though, uh, and I agree with everything uh, uh, that Michael said, because their concern would be that they would lose a partner, a junior partner, but in their pushback against what they see as a world order dominated by the United States and the West, and they wouldn't want to see a leader come to power in Russia, however difficult it is for us to imagine that, who might rethink Russian foreign policy and think it might make more sense to have a less antagonistic relationship with the West and maybe rethink the relationship with China. Again, impossible to imagine that now, but I think deep down, that's also part of the Chinese calculations that they do not want to see Russia lose the war. You're listening to Foreign Policy Live. We'll be right back. And we're back with Foreign Policy Live. I want to turn to subscriber questions in a second, but since we brought up China, Angeline, you've written about the role of the Global South in this conflict. Most of the, the countries in the Global South have not uh, chosen to support U.S. sanctions on Russia. There's a, a famous line by the Indian Foreign Minister S. Jayashankar, who said that, you know, well, Europe's problems are often the world's problems, but the world's problems are never Europe's problems. Uh, and he's used that as a as a way to say this is why India, for example, isn't playing an active role in trying to sanction Russia. On the other hand, it's in fact dramatically increased its purchases of Russian crude. I believe it's thirty three x by by the latest count. What's your sense of um, what the West has gotten wrong in trying to engage uh, the global South in this conflict? Well, I think they've underestimated the extent to which many of these countries look at the U.S. and they say this publicly and they say, well, what about Vietnam? What about Iraq? What about Afghanistan? You're criticizing Russia for doing things, some of which you've done yourself. So this kind of charge of hypocrisy is there. Uh, some of that was even evident at the Munich Security Conference. And then saying that this is a kind of that the West is neglecting their the own the problems that they face and that was there at the Munich security conference too food insecurity humanitarian crises climate issues all of these other issues that they think that the US and, and the collective west if you like should be paying more attention to and particularly in the case of India which is after all a partner of the United States in the quad um the US and the other partners in the quad have gone out of their way to try and persuade India to see this differently but India's Interests are different. Uh, India has uh, a longstanding relationship, first of all, with the Soviet Union, now with post-Soviet Russia, involving certainly arms purchases, but more than that. And there are a number of other countries around the world, again, who have their own interests uh, in relations with Russia that they don't want to break. So I think that we in the West have not been very astute at understanding this. And I'm not sure how much we can do to change people's minds on this. Mm. Um, okay, as promised, I'm going to turn to a few subscriber questions. They are always uh, incredibly intelligent. Michael, first to you. I have questions from Laurie Garrett, one of our columnists, also Tim Reed, and a few others writing in to ask about the Wagner Group. Who actually commands them in the field? How do they operate? How do they join up or mesh with 
regular Russian armed forces? And, you know, how much can they endure uh, the next few months of war? Okay, Wagner is kind of a semi-state actor, maybe parastatal entity, where they have a dual reporting chain. This is at least my impression. On the one hand, right, they're their own organization with their own culture, their own recruitment, and their own support run by Prigozhin, which everybody knows because he's quite popular in terms of media coverage, given, given the kind of figure that he is. Wagner is also very much an extension of Russian military and Russian military intelligence. It's not comprised of Russian military regulars or Russian intelligence, but it's obviously supported and backed by them. You can't engage in a conventional war if you're not. Where does the equipment, where does the ammunition and supply come from? In fact, even right now, you can see Prigozhin openly complaining that the Russian military is not supplying Wagner with artillery ammunition he was getting before. And because of that, you know, he's concerned that they're suffering much higher casualties. Wagner at this stage represents actually two diverse forces, as opposed to what it looked like earlier last spring in 2022. There's Wagner that's comprised of more experienced soldiers, right? That's capable of conducting various types of small squad tactics. And there's maybe up to 20, 30,000 of Wagner soldiers that are convicts from the Russian prison system that have signed up with Wagner in exchange for, a, let's say, a much reduced sentence and are being used much more as cannon fodder by the organization. And they're essentially expendables in a way to offset Russian casualties. That's been the case, I think, since November. That said, there are internal squabbles, infighting between Wagner and the Russian military. Wagner and its leader, Prigozhin, have tried to claim credit for any successes, particularly around Bakhmut. The Russian military has tried to do very much the same. In reality, Wagner is backed by the Russian armed forces. It is ultimately an extension of them. And Prigozhin is a minor player compared to the other actors involved. That's typically overblown in Western press. He's really nobody compared to the Minister of Defense like Shoigu. And... Uh, you see that in areas where Wagner has been successful, they've often also been backed by units of the Russian airborne. But it's a complicated story, and there's quite a bit we don't know because it's been evolving over the last couple of months. All right. So I'm I'm I myself am actually fascinated at a meta level with our fascination with Wagner, which has played an increasingly important role in this conflict, but nonetheless a much more minor one than I think coverage would lend one to believe. That's fascinating. Well, I'll put my hand up and say we have covered Wagner a fair bit, but I'll I'll accept that. Oh, I'm sure all of us all of us are fascinated by who they are and how they work. I urge you to check out uh, any McKinnon's pieces on on the Wagner Group on our website. Um, Angela, I have several subscribers asking about Putin himself. Uh, Adriano Arietti wants to know if his removal is a prerequisite for brokering peace with Russia. And Denis Bulatov also wants to ask whether you think there are any threats uh, to Putin within the Kremlin or whether he's managed to coup-proof himself over the last year and beyond. Well, um, when I answer that, I have to say we ha all have to be humble. You know, what goes on inside the Kremlin is pretty much a black box and we can make predictions and say things and we can be proven wrong tomorrow. So far, it appears, as I said in the beginning, that he seems to have used this year to consolidate his power. Very few of the top elite have left. 
or and and no none of the top elite have criticized him and there are you know there are people who say even those in the top who would like to do so or even leave won't do that because they're not quite sure what would happen to them if they did so he is really clamped down this is a highly personalistic system there are no checks and balances institutional checks and balances um, on either his power or actually the power of the armed forces. So it's very hard to see who could challenge him at the moment. And so he he appears to be pretty firmly in power. And those, you know, the people around him, whom we believe are his closest advisors, uh, share his views or certainly aren't going to challenge him on the conduct of the war. So it's very hard to imagine that you could have a real settlement of this conflict as long as he's in the Kremlin, just because unless he changes his mind, and as we've been saying, he is in this for the long haul. And uh, as Michael said, he thinks this is analogous to World War II. And in the end, you know, they'll just tough it out and they will prevail, although it's not completely clear what prevailing means for them. So I would say, if you look at his speech yesterday, we really don't have any sense of what their actual goals or war aims are at the moment. We know what they were sort of at the beginning of the war. So would he be able to settle for something less than for the recognition by Ukraine of the four annexed territories? We don't know that. Or settle for less than taking Kiev, which I think he hasn't given up. So I again, I find it very hard to imagine what kind of negotiation settlement could occur as long as he's in the Kremlin and as long as the Ukrainians aren't willing to essentially accept the Kremlin's terms. Mm. Uh, Michael, you know, we haven't talked about sanctions yet, and we often talk about sanctions on FP Live uh, in foreign policy. But I'm curious how you think sanctions have impacted in particular Russia's ability to fight? Uh, How have sanctions affected its military, its arms procurement? Have they been effective on that front? I mean, honestly, not much. It's way too early for sanctions to affect the defense industrial production or military effort of any country. So you're looking at impact on the wrong timeline, to be perfectly honest. Mm. Um, If you look at most Russian defense industrial production, it's been mobilized since the summer. I think there are areas where sanctions and export controls have imposed constraints. But so folks understand, export controls typically make acquisition of components more costly and they delay, meaning they make it harder to work around and create delays, but they usually don't block them. I mean, even if you look at Iranian drones being pulled apart in Ukraine, they often have more Western components and circuitry than even Russian missiles. So you have to manage your expectations of what impact sanctions are going to have on the military effort. I think the impact will stack over time. It will take time uh, to generate effects maybe later this year or the next. That said, I should not assume, I wouldn't assume that any sanctions or export controls are going to affect Russian defense industrial production uh, nearly in the same way that they're going to actually affect the Russian economy, right, or the commercial sector. They are having real effects there, and they began to be quite visible. Now, price caps and things of that nature, of course, again, will affect Russia's budget. But keep in mind, one thing they're going to defend is defense spending, right? So they are going to make cuts elsewhere, and they're going to sustain this war. You're not going to sanction Russia out of this war, and it's not likely that sanctions are going to have significant effects in time for what is going to be the decisive period of this war, assuming that that ends up being this year, right? Obviously, you can never tell and you can't forecast these things very well. So my short answer on sanctions is 
you have to have the right expectations. You have to understand how they're really going to work and you have to look at the right timelines, right? And a year into the war, it's still rather too soon and you're not going to have the same effects on Russian military defense industrial production that you would see in the rest of the Russian economy, although you will have some and they are interrelated. And of course, the IMF is forecasting that Russia's economy will grow by a very small amount this year. Um, Angela, I have a question for you from another subscriber, Tom Litwack, who's asking, uh, given how important Crimea is to both Russia and Ukraine, and the risk that Russia would use nuclear weapons before surrendering Crimea to Ukrainian control, what options are on the table um, for ending uh, the war in a tolerable fashion for both sides? Uh, and is there anything better are there any options that, that would beat making Crimea a neutral protectorate of the UN? Uh, that's a question from Tom Litwack. I mean, the Ukrainian war aims, as stated now by President Zelensky and his colleagues, is to take back all of the territory that Russia has taken since 2014. So that would be the whole of the Donbass, obviously, the Zaporizhia and Kherson uh, regions, and Crimea. Um, now, at other times, uh, earlier on last year, when there were tentative uh, peace negotiations in Istanbul in February and March, the Ukrainians were willing to say that the issue of Crimea was for some time later, if Russia were to withdraw its troops to where they were on February 23rd, uh, 2022. And uh, Ukraine would then also have said that it would remain a neutral state, that it wouldn't see NATO membership. Now, uh, that was all overtaken by uh, the, when the atrocities were found at Bucha and the Russians haven't been really interested in any kind of serious negotiations. It's very, it would be very hard for President Zelensky or any other Ukrainian leader now to agree to give up significant amounts of territory if we put Crimea aside for the moment, um, even the Donbass. And so, you know, unless the tide turns on the battlefield and the Ukrainians don't really have any other choice, um, they will still, they won't want to negotiate something that involves substantial territorial concessions. Now, if 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 they were seriously, if it looked as if they were seriously going to take Crimea, of course, that's the case when some people say, well, that would be the red line for Putin. And that's when, uh, you know, he would uh, deploy a tactical nuclear weapon. Um, we, we, of course, don't know that. I think he thinks that we'd like to, to think about it. It's very hard to think of any way in which this war ends um, at the moment. Some people, and to come back to the question, I mean, some people think, one possible end to it might be a Korean solution where you do have, there's no peace treaty, uh, you have a dividing line between the two countries, which is somehow guaranteed by troops from some uh, part of the world. And that would involve Ukraine having, you know, pretty robust Western security guarantees and a commitment going forward for as long as one can see that the United States and the other NATO countries will will keep it um, very well armed and it will give it the wherewithal to fight if Russia then uh, decides to attack again. And the problem then comes back to how credible could any peace negotiation be since Russia's track record in the past 30 years of treaties with Ukraine that involved its territorial integrity and sovereignty have been that it's broken all of them. Uh, and in fact, Putin told various Western politicians way back that he didn't believe that Russia was in fact bound uh, by these treaties that were signed before he was president. Uh, so that's a big question mark. And then that comes back to the question of 
can this war end and be negotiated while Putin is still in the Kremlin? Yeah, those are tough questions to answer. Michael, I'm going to give you the last one. And, you know, just back to the battlefield, um, given what we now know, given what we know of how both sides are staffed and supplied, I know you've said that a stalemate is likely, but where do you see one year? No, I said the opposite, but okay. <laughs> Where where do you see uh, one year from now uh, the, the 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 battlefield sort of state of play looking like? Okay, so I have no crystal ball that I can use to see a year into the future on the battlefield. What I think is likely going to happen right now is that the Russian military's offensive is fairly anemic, and I don't think the Russian military is in a position to make significant gains or breakthrough. Although we will see, depending on how this offensive plays out. Ukraine is then likely to seize the initiative and then pursue their own offensive in the spring. And we'll see how that plays out. And as we move into the summer, the big question will be whether Russia conducts another wave of mobilization. I think that's very likely. And I think they're going to do it based on what happens in the winter offensive now. Right. But I think a second mobilization for the Russian military is almost inevitable at some point later on. And Ukraine will see what level of material assistance it is able to get from the West beyond the tranche that it received in January, whether there are further tranches, further support in the summer, or if a summary, the summer might be a high watermark of Western assistance. I don't think that's necessarily going to be the case. I just think it'll be interesting to, to watch uh, for those for those indicators. And then a good point to check in with the war is probably more towards the summer, early fall, right? I am very reticent, I'll be honest, there's another meta-tendency in media to try to declare a stalemate at any given point where not enough is happening on the battlefield, okay? And that's just not the case. Wars go in phases, right? So whatever phase you're in is not likely going to be how the next several months will go, right? We were in a transitional phase after the fall. We're now seeing a Russian offensive. We're going to see a Ukraine offensive. And I'm not really sure what the summer or fall will look like. It depends on how the next weeks play out. So these things are very difficult to predict. I'm sorry these are disappointing answers, but I often say military analysis is not fortune-telling. It's a slightly different profession. <laughs> nope, I can imagine. Uh, and we're not here for easy answers. Uh, Michael Kaufman, Angela Stent, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to have you on. And that was Angela Stent and Michael Kaufman, two Russia experts we frequently rely on for advice. Next week, we're going to look at America's economic choices. Of late, European countries have been complaining that U.S. economic policy has become protectionist. Has it? I'll have U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai on to explain Washington's position. Remember, if you want to watch these in video live, you can do that on foreignpolicy.com live. And subscribers get a chance to be a part of the conversation. They can submit questions in advance and help frame these discussions. Sign up and use the code FPLIVE for a 15% discount. I'm Ravi Agrawal, FP's Editor-in-Chief. I'll see you next week. analyst and columnist Danielle Moody. And I'm writer with Jahat Ali. And we've come together to lead you away from the lies and out of the gaslight. This, this is, is Democracy-ish. Democracy -ish. 
absolutely very excited to speak with the host of the Mary Trump show, Mary Trump. This is the Republican Party. There's there aren't different wings of it anymore. The entirety of the Republican Party is a white supremacist fascist party. Brian Tyler Cohen. People are focused on the attacks on democracy. They understand that this extremism is leading to further attacks and further erosions of rights. We discuss the serious issues and threats that face our nation. Join us on Democracy-ish everywhere you get your podcasts.